Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as He makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com. Thank you, Tiana. Good morning, everyone. Uh, If you're new here or don't remember, my name is Jimmy. I'm one of the pastors here at Missio Day Uptown. Super thankful you're here this morning. And just thankful to uh, John for kicking us off for Black History Month. We're going to be sharing about four different books um, that we have found really impactful uh, as a team or uh, some people in our community uh, and invite you to check those out. Um, I just want to say, like, if you really want that book uh, and it's not something that fits within the budget, let me know. I'll figure it out for you. Um, Yeah, and then just thanks to everyone for being here this morning. Really excited. Um, I want to start by, uh, we've already acknowledged a lot of reality this morning, right? Um, But I want to acknowledge another reality. I, uh, I have always been curious about the placement of the new year. Um, not curious enough to like actually look it up why the new year starts in January, but like at least in like a, huh, I wonder why why January is our new year, right? If you think about it, like obviously coming into the new year, it's new year, new us. We have this renewed energy, January 6th, everyone's in the gym, right? And then by the time we get to February 6th, our vitamin D is too low, our eyes are too droopy. And our hair follicles are too goosebumpy to still be in that gym, right? And it is an empty, empty place, right? Think about it. Like if I, uh, if my goal, if I was picking out the new year and my goal was to make sure that zero people reached their goals for the new year, I would start the new year in January, right? (laughs) Like when else would you start that is like the possible worst time? Um, In my opinion, the the greatest description of this idea or of January and February in Chicago is by Mr. Tumnus. Uh, He's the fawn in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, And he says this. This is a picture of him if you've seen the movie. He says, It is winter in Narnia and has been for ever so long. Always winter, but never Christmas. Always winter, but never Christmas. Doesn't that sort of feel true for Chicago? Sometimes it's like December's here. It's this beautiful wintry wonderland where we go to zoo lights. We go skate at Maggie Daly. We get our mold wine over at the um, Kris Kringle market and it goes super, super fast. And then January gets here. And I think it has been a year since the new year, right? January was, I don't know if this is just me, but January was so long. And now we're in February. It's the shortest month of the, of the year. Um, but it certainly does not feel like it to me, right? We, uh, we all of a sudden are in the season where it's dark, it's a soggy marsh, uh, we don't leave our houses. When we do, the slop soaks through our shoes, and we can never get enough sleep, right? Always winter, never Christmas. Welcome to church. Um, <laughs> Why am I hammering home this idea that you already know and are trying to forget? Well, uh, we have been in a series called A Church for Uptown, where we have been talking about our goals and aspirations as a church. What kind of church are we becoming? 
And how can we intentionally live out some of the values that we find important in our community? And this series, for me at least, has been super fun to think through, right? It's been fun to consider, like, who are we becoming? Like, how can we live out some of these things more? And yet, the reality is, the further we get into the new year, the further we get away from the energy that is brought with January 1, the further these aspirations feel out of reach, right? Reality begins to set in. We realize that growing in love, presence, in all the things we have talked about, it doesn't come easy. It's not easy to sustain either. Simply put, we lose heart. So for the next two weeks, as we kick off February uh, and we're, we lean or we transition to our Lent series, we're going to walk through 2 Corinthians 4 in these next two weeks. It's a chapter that explores the idea of losing heart amidst hard circumstances. What is our hope and sustenance when we, frankly, are not feeling it, right? But before I continue with my time, let me pray. Lord, uh, I pray this morning uh, for focus. I pray that we are able to set our eyes on you, have a little bit of a respite amidst the chaotic uh, week, Lord, this morning, uh, as we just think about your word and think about you. This morning, Lord, as I preach, I pray that it was remembered are your words, not mine. I pray that I am about your glory, not my own. Help me to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. In your son's name I pray, amen. Hey, I meant to say earlier for the, um, if you're like really debating whether or not to go to uh, Ash Wednesday, you're like, well, it's Valentine's Day. Just remember, you cannot spell Valentine without Lent, okay? (laughs) Just remember that. Just remember that. All right. Anyways, let's get back into 2 Corinthians 4. Uh, Yeah, yeah, thank you. I didn't come up with that, but I am going to take credit for it. Um, 2 Corinthians 4, like I said, it's pretty obvious with its purpose. In both verse 1 and verse 16, Paul states the exact same thing, and he states the purpose for this letter, right? In verse 1, he says, therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. And then he goes on this whole diatribe that we're going to, part of we're going to explore this morning. And then in verse 16 again, he says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Why does Paul say this? What is the context surrounding 2 Corinthians 4, and who even is the we that he's talking about, right? Well, Paul's relationship with the church in Corinth, the church he wrote this letter to, was a bit of a complicated one. Paul planted the church during one of his missionary journeys, and things did not get off to a great start after he left. But you don't have to take it from me. You can read 1 Corinthians and see that that church is a bit of a hot mess, right? Uh, I think sometimes when we think of 1 Corinthians, we usually think of like 1 Corinthians 13, because that's in like weddings, you know? Love is patient, love is kind. But then if you like actually read the book, it takes you 12 verses in chapter 1 to be like, these people are messed up, right? These people are, have a lot going on. So he re- writes 1 Corinthians, and then between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Paul travels to the church in Corinth and helps to get them back on track. He restores relationship with them and leaves in a good spot. And while the book of 2 Corinthians has a little bit more of a positive uh, tone, connotation to it, the reality is, is when he leaves, things are not all hunky-dory with the church in Corinth, right? You see, 
early in 2 Corinthians, Paul addresses that his authority, 2 Corinthians, sorry, his authority has been called into question. He addresses that his authority has been called into question. You see, the church is all of a sudden asking him for letters of recommendation to prove that they should be listening to him. Now, Paul planted this church. He had relationships with them, right? So Paul is a bit befuddled, and he tells them, my brother in Christ, you are my letter of recommendation, right? I planted the church here. Like, you are the proof that Christ has used me to to help this region, right? So why are the Corinthians asking this question? Well, we got to know a little bit about Paul. The reality is, is Paul was a man who was poor. He was suffering both from persecution and from a general lack of luck. Like, this man ran so badly. Like, shipwrecks, diseases, all sorts of things, right? And Paul was a little bit boring in his speaking habits. The reality, he put a man to death. He was so boring, right? Yeah, it's true. Look it up. Paul, in all accounts, was a bit unremarkable. And then there were those who came along claiming to be Christians who were wealthier, healthier, and had a little bit more riz, right? That's charisma for anyone over the age of, I don't know. Yeah, it's charisma. He had a little little bit more charisma. I I stopped myself. I don't want to get in trouble. So the Corinthians began to doubt that Paul could have been sent by God, right? He is boring. He has nothing going for him. Why would God send someone who seemingly does not have a lot going for him? right? These other people must be from God. Paul begins to address this, but he also addresses the emotional reality of him being called into question by his friends, by his disciples, right? Despite you questioning us, this is where uh, chapter 4 comes in. Despite you questioning us, we do not lose heart. So, the we here is Paul and those who traveled with him for his ministry, right? And they do not lose heart even though those they have ministered to are calling him into question. Okay? This is the context that uh, we exist in when we arrive to 2 Corinthians 4. So I want to begin, begin to look at the text itself to see why we cannot lose heart, right? Okay, verse 1. I should have it on the screen. It says, therefore… Okay, stop. What's the question we ask when we see a Therefore. Wow, you, you, you all knew. What's the therefore? Therefore, right? What's the therefore, therefore? Well, if you continue in verse 1, I did not expect anyone to answer that. Sometimes I'll like ask you guys personal questions, and everyone's like… So, thank you. Um, if you continue in verse 1, it gives a little context. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart, right? So, Paul has his ministry through God's mercy, and this is why he does not lose heart. Okay, we're getting somewhere, right? That makes a little bit more sense. But therefore, almost always also refers backwards, right? It refers to what came before it. So, let's look at a little bit of chapter 3. What came before uh, our therefore here? Now, chapter 3 begins with um, Paul exploring the idea of the letters of recommendation. This is the part where he's like, brother, what are you talking about, right? You are my letter of recommendation. So, that's how chapter 3 starts. Um, And then he tells them 
that they are his letters of recommendation. And then he says this in verse 6, God has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter of the law, or sorry, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, this might sound familiar, because if you were here last week, you know this is what I preached on, that the new covenant, the way the new covenant was distinct from the old covenant, is that it is no longer the law, but it is the Spirit, right? Is sort of the defining feature of the new covenant. That the new covenant in Jesus means that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit to help us grow into being the daughters and sons of God that we already are, right? That is the new covenant. And this is exactly what Paul is saying. He is saying that he and the people with them have been made competent as ministers of the gospel because of the reality of the Holy Spirit. Okay, Paul is competent because he has the Holy Spirit. His competence is because of God's presence, not because of anything he brings to the table, right? And then, in the rest of chapter 3, Paul goes into the differences between the Old and the New Covenant, just like I did last week. But to quickly show you how this relates to chapter 4, I want to look at verses 15 to 18 together. Verse 15, it says, again, this is chapter 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3. These are the verses that come right before verse 1. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So he's saying the purpose of the Old Testament is unclear unless we have the Spirit. The purpose of the Old Testament is unclear unless we have the Spirit. A veil clouds our vision of what's happening in the Old Testament or the purpose of it, right? Okay, continuing in verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Don't get lost in all this language. This is amazing, right? In other words, we receive the Spirit, and the Spirit leads to freedom, okay? We receive the Spirit, the Spirit leads to freedom, but freedom is not just for freedom's sake, right? What are we set free to? We are not just set free from things. What are we set free to? Verse 18 explains that we are set free to set our eyes on Jesus. We are set free to think about Jesus, know Jesus, love Jesus. And the longer we look at him, the more we look like him, right? That's what it's saying. The longer we look at Jesus, the more we look like Jesus. We become what we behold. I've preached on that before. So when we get back into 2 Corinthians 4, the therefore is referring to the fact that we have the new covenant, the spirit that empowers us. Therefore, since through God's mercy, we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Because they are empowered by God's spirit to do what they're doing, Paul and his gang do not lose heart, right? He knows that he has a spirit. He knows it's from God. And then, if you continue in the passage from verse 2 to the verse 4, Paul shows partially why this allows them to not lose heart. What is it about the spirit being present in their ministry that fights against discouragement? You see, Paul explains, I'm not going to reread it, but Paul explains that he will not do what the other teachers who are shown up, showing up, he's not going to do what they're doing. 
He will not distort anything about the Word of God in His preaching. He will not add any fancy tricks or deception to bait people into His ministry. And verse 3 and 4 explain why this is important. You see, Paul's responsibility to the Corinthians is to display Christ in His deeds and His words. His response is, or sorry, His responsibility is not how people respond. You guys see that? Paul's responsibility is to preach Christ. His responsibility is not how the Corinthians respond, right? Why does this… Oh, sorry. Let me see this. In other words, success in ministry is stepping out in the power of Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. We step out in the power of the Spirit. We leave the results to God. This is what Paul is saying in uh, his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 3, verse 6 and 7, when he says this, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes, the gr- or who makes things grow, right? He's not talking about gardening here. He's talking about ministry, right? So why does this, though, fight against discouragement. Put yourself in Paul's shoes for a minute, right? I've already said this, but you have made multiple trips to this church. You have spent significant time with the Corinthians. They are your friends. You have written multiple letters calling them to a better way of life, and yet they are questioning you and regressing in their Christlikeness. The reminder that Paul is not responsible for their growth is going to fight against the spiraling he could experience, right? What did I do wrong? What could I have done better? What's wrong with me, right? These are some questions that Paul could be asking of himself. The reality is that even though what we have preached on the last month sounds really great and is easy to get behind, it's not always easy in practice. A calling to affirm the dignity in all means more than just telling people that they are made in the image of God, right? A call to be present and loving toward people in our neighborhood can be really, really draining, right? If you're like, no, it's not, you probably haven't done it. (laughs) (laughs) The work of moving from shame to boldness, that is not easy, right? The reality is that all of these things are calling on us us to give up parts of our lives, So what happens if we don't immediately see fruit? What happens if even as we choose to love people, they don't accept it? What happens when it gets hard? The reality is is that even as we live out our values in the power of the Holy Spirit, spiritual growth is not linear. Spiritual growth is not linear. People do not linearly grow, right? There's like some good stuff, some bad stuff, some good stuff, some bad stuff, right? And we are never promised we get to see the results on this side of eternity. When we don't see the fruit of our labor, it's easy to lose heart, right? But we are not called to make the fruit grow. We are only called to be faithfully loving and present here in Uptown, to proclaim Christ and His love for people, and to trust God with those who hear and see it right? What does Paul say in verse 5? For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, 
and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. You see, despite their turning their backs on Paul, this part's really good, so if you're a little sleepy, come back to me. Despite their turning their backs on Paul, despite them calling him into question, he says that he will preach Christ to them and continue to be in the role of their servants for Christ's sake. See, what it, do, like, do you realize how radical this is? That despite, the, not just their lack of love for Paul, but they're like calling him into question, he is still saying in verse 5 that he's going to serve them, that they are greater than he is, right? Paul, it, it would be really easy for Paul in this moment to be like the guy who's praising, praying and being like, God, thank you that I'm not like them, right? Thank you that I don't follow just the health and wealth preachers, right? But Paul is saying that he is their servant, right? Like, this is the gospel, right? That even though we turned our backs on God, he did not turn our, his back on us, but sent his son that we might be reconciled to him, Paul is able to serve the Corinthians despite all the discouragement because he knows the gospel well, because he has dwelled in God's love. He has abided in the grace of God that softens even the hardest of hearts. Because God loved Paul, Paul was able to love the Corinthians, right? And yet, despite all this, this is really exciting, right? Like, we get to see that the motivation of the gospel leads to real love, but I'm going to say this. This is going to seem a little counterintuitive to what I said, but stick with me. Even the motivation of the gospel is not enough to love the, the Corinthians well on its own. Why do I say that? Well, look at verses 6 and 7. Uh, verse 6 says this, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm saying that quickly because it, when you just first read it, you're just like, that's a lot of ofs, and it's just like building off one another, and it's a little bit confusing. So let's go slowly. God said he was going to make light shine out of darkness, and so he made light shine in our hearts, right? So there's some parallel language. Our hearts were the darkness, right? But what does this mean? Now, uh, I was just going to leave it at just like being like, oh, isn't this cool? God shined some light on our hearts and we moved on. But Emmy highlighted something for me in this passage that really illuminated this passage a little bit more. This says, light, let light shine out of darkness. So it's not into darkness. It's not as if God is shining a flashlight into the darkness to try to find something good in there, right? No, it's out of darkness. What is this reminiscent of? Genesis 1, creation, right? Let there be light. God is not just illuminating the dark, but he's transforming it entirely, right? Twisting the shadow, this is, these are Emmy's words, twisting the shadows into light. And that is the treasure that we're going to get to that verse 7 refers to. Perfect light out of total darkness. That is wild, Right? Not only do we get to carry this light, like verse 7 says, but that we, the vessels, have been transformed entirely. Look at why this has been done in the rest of the verse. Why has our darkness been transformed into something entirely new, into light? It says, to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory 
In other words, God's transforming our hearts is so that we can understand Him and begin to grasp Him. Yes, it will be an incomplete grasping, right? We're not going to understand God entirely, but we get to understand God because God helps us. And how do we specifically get to see God's glory displayed in the face of Jesus? If you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus, right? Okay, but how does this relate to what we were talking about before? How does it relate to not losing heart? It says this, verse 7, but we have this treasure. This treasure is the knowledge of God's glory, right? This treasure is being transformed from darkness to light. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. What's going on here? Some of you have probably heard this before, but jars of clay in the context of the Corinthian church uh, was basically like their Tupperware, right? So they're cheap storage containers. So the metaphor Paul is using is putting a piece of treasure, something incredibly valuable, and something incredibly not, right? The treasure here, like I said, is the gospel, aka the transformation, the knowledge of God's glory. And the jar of clay here is Paul, right? It's us. So what Paul is saying here is that God uses jars of clay. He uses broken people to carry the treasure that is the gospel. Why? To show that he is the one who is in control, right? To show that the surpassing power is his and not ours. I said the motivation of understanding the gospel was not enough for Paul to continue to be loving to the Corinthians. Verses 6 and 7 show that it is only by God's power that Paul is able to do this. So understanding is good, but uh, God's empowerment is what makes us able to, be, to lean into this, right? Being wholly transformed by the gospel. In the same way, it is only by God's power that we are able to grow into the kind of church that we have talked about being. It is only by God's power that we are able to sustain this loving ministry in Uptown. It is only by God's power that we are able to have this treasure in jars of clay. That was a lot of words, so let me recap for you real quickly. Living out our calling is pretty hard, right? All of the things we've talked about in the last couple of weeks, that's really difficult. People are messy, and we are people. It can be exhausting and easy to lose heart. Paul reminds us that amidst all this, we need to remember that we are not responsible for the growth and that we have been given the Spirit so that God may be the one doing the work, not us. We're just along for the ride, right? In other words, the way we combat a loss of heart is faith. Faith that despite what we do or don't get to see, that God is at work. Faith that God is more committed to His glory than we are. Faith that our labor of love is not in vain. There's a reason chapter 3 talks about freedom when it talks about receiving the Spirit, right? We are set free from results, from making people grow ourselves, from providing a compelling argument about Christianity. And what are we set free to? Love God, love others, 
and allow God to work through us. This morning, I began my time with a quote from Mr. Tumnus. It is winter in Narnia, and it has been for ever so long. Always winter, but never Christmas. You see, you probably know the story, at least some of you do. It was always winter in Narnia because the white witch, an evil witch, had usurped the power over Narnia and cursed it to always be winter under her rule, right? Tumnus Arfan, he knew this when he told Lucy that it was always winter in Narnia. He knew this because he was an informant for the white witch, but he was an informant because he was motivated by fear. Why was he afraid? He did not have the privilege of knowing the winter would end when Aslan returned and defeated the white witch, right? He didn't have that privilege. We, however, do not live in the same reality. We are not in the position of Tumnus, not knowing about the Savior to come. You see, we live on this side of the cross and resurrection. When our Aslan, Jesus, destroyed death through his own death on the cross. And we have the privilege of knowing even though the winter persists right now, it will not always be winter. But there will come a day when Jesus will return again and put the final blows on, on death, right? And winter is no more. While it's so often hard for us to remember this reality and lose heart, we must remind ourselves that God is in control, that the winter will not persist, and that we can have hope and be sustained in our ministry because of this reality. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com.